episode 52 and season 5 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your classy and sassy host, Kristen Hawes, aka Kiki Writes. It's a brand new season of Hawaii Five-O, and we are kicking it off with episode 1, Death is a Company Policy, and episode 2, Death Wish on Tantalus Mountain. We are into the second third of this series, if you like fractions. And we've had our first big cast shakeup since technically the pilot when they replaced Tim O'Kelly with James MacArthur as Danny. But to recap real quick, Zulu, aka Kono, left the show at the end of season four, and we have in his stead Al Harrington as Ben Kakua, and he'll be with us for a couple of seasons. We also have Herman Wedemeyer as Duke, recurring in earnest starting in this season. So we are going to be getting to know a couple of new faces. Well, new in the sense of the character, not necessarily the actor. We already know that. Since we're starting a new season, let me go ahead and lay down a few of those handy-dandy reminders. First of all, just enjoy the ambient noise. I have totally given up trying to eradicate it. I live in a very loud house. I live in a loud neighborhood for a small town because I don't live too far away from a highway and I have neighbors who have chickens and dogs so it can be incredibly noisy and I am no longer shutting windows when it's hot just to try to keep that noise out because I'm tired of sweltering. The longer this podcast goes on, the lazier I get about it. Reminder number two, I endeavor to pronounce everyone's name correctly. I actually look things up. I try to get the pronunciations correct. I fail miserably on a regular basis. I mean no insult. If anybody knows how to correctly pronounce some of these actors' names, they are more than welcome to shoot me a message and correct me, and I will try to do better in the future. But I really am trying. I know it doesn't seem like it, but I am. And finally, yes, I use trigger warnings. The reason why I do this is because I like people to be prepared for what they're going to listen to. If it's going to be content that I think might be upsetting, I would much rather them come back and listen to an episode later when they're in a better mindset for it than to be blindsided with it and then give up on the podcast entirely. I realize that I'm not going to cover every trigger warning possible, I do try to hit the big ones like sexual assault and racial slurs are two that frequently pop up. I also want to mention that at this time, at this recording, um, Maui has experienced some devastating wildfires that have decimated Lahaina. And currently there are fundraising efforts happening to help the residents of that island recover. By the time this goes live, it'll be about a month to six weeks later. And there's no telling when you're listening to this in the future, but please know my thoughts, prayers, and cash are with the residents of Maui right now. So, with all of that said, no further delays. Let's go to Hawaii. To Steve McGarrett, Hawaii 5 from Johnny Resco, Walina Street, Waikiki. Think of this letter like a voice from the dead. You'll receive it only if I've been... Double-crossed by Piro Manoa, who I am going to meet tomorrow. If I don't come back from this meeting, my friends will put this letter in the mail. In it, you'll find enough facts and proof to put Manoa away for life and throw away the key. I know it all. 
because him and me were like brothers. So if Manoa nice me in the back tomorrow, this letter to you, McGarrett, is my way of reaching up from the grave and pulling him down with me. Season 5, Episode 1, Death is a Company Policy, air date September 12, 1972, directed by Charles S. Dubin. This is his fifth of 24 episodes, and written by Jerome Coopersmith. This is his tenth of 32 episodes. Johnny Resco and Puro Manoa, along with their bodyguards, meet on a private street next to the ocean. Johnny wants to talk business, but Puro wants to chat. They're old friends. Johnny finally brings it in for a hug, and Puro shoots him. Piro's bodyguard, Mo, pays off Johnny's bodyguards, and they kindly dump Johnny's body in the trunk of the car so it can later be sealed in a barrel and dumped off a ship into the ocean. However, a voiceover reads a letter to McGarrett stating that if he's reading it, Johnny's dead and Piro's to blame. Steve, Danny, Chin, new guy Ben Kakua, and future favorite officer Duke Lucala all head into a meeting with the state's attorney's office. Steve passes out the letter to John Manicote, Chris Lonnie, and Paul Drummond. The letter alleges that Piro killed Anna Ryoto back in 68. Johnny's got the gun Piro used in a safe in his apartment, a tape recording of the victim begging for her life in Johnny's brother's beach house, and the name of an eyewitness, Sylvia a hustler and junkie who was in the next room at the time. Steve lays the ground rules of checking out the contents of the letter. No one outside of the room knows about the raids except for the judge signing the warrants. Steve, Ben, Dano, Chin, and Duke mark the simultaneous raids at 2.30 and then break. Danny and Ben find Johnny's apartment ransacked and the safe blown open. There's no gun in the lockbox. Chin and an off- another officer find the beach house in flames. No tape recording. Steve and Duke find Sylvia dead, hanging in an apparent suicide. All evidence has been destroyed. Five-O and the state's attorney fill in the governor. It seems there's a leak in someone's office. Chris vouches for the judge who signed the warrants because he was with him for a while afterwards. Chin Ho confirms that the officer he took with him had no idea where they were going or why, and they don't believe anyone else knew the contents of the letter. Because of this leak, Steve proposes Manicote's office will investigate 5-0, and 5-0 will investigate the state's attorney's office. The governor reluctantly agrees. Steve and Duke run into street mouth Runny Gross at the elevators, who assures him he's there on an innocent errand. His suspicious behavior is not unnoticed. Runny then checks in with Piro, who's dealing with an accountant from the company, named Miss Simpson. Runny tells him that 5 is clueless about the leak. That's because the only ones who know are Piro, the leak, and Runny, carrying messages back and forth. Unfortunately, a cable from the company that Piro received earlier states that Runny is the odd man out. He ends up in a barrel. Steve demonstrates the computer technology they're working with to dig up information on someone. High tech. Everyone must sign a release to have their lives dug into. Nothing will be secret. All records will be probed, in-depth interviews with friends, family, and neighbors, and medical records, including sexual behaviors. Ben hurries up and signs his paper because there's word on the street that Runny Gross was hit and he needs to find out more. Ben talks to Runny's girl, Angie, who's apparently leaving. She doesn't want to advertise that she was Runny's girl because she doesn't want to be hit, too. Ben offers to help, pointing out that after six years of being an informant, which everyone knew, there's a reason Runny was hit now. Angie tells him that if he wants answers, he needs to look higher up, in his own office. 
Manicote's office and 5-0 review each other's records. Everything is fairly straightforward or can be explained until they get to Duke's finances. There's a $19,000 deposit in the Hilo bank account that can't be explained away. Duke is questioned. He doesn't know about that deposit and he doesn't have a Hilo bank account. All he has there is a niece who's a single mother whom he helped out getting a shop started and visits twice a year. When Drummond presents evidence that Duke bought stock in sand and surf condominiums in cash in person, which conveniently can't be verified because the woman who handled it died of leukemia two years ago, Duke says there's no way he could have that much in cash because he had to take out a second mortgage on his house to help his niece set up her shop but the evidence is too good for the state's attorney's office, and Duke is forced to turn in his badge, much to Piro's delight, but not surprise. However, Steve knows a frame job when he sees one, and he's going to find the cracks in this one, something that the company and Miss Simpson, but not so much Piro, expect. Real quick, I want to mention that we're kicking off season five with a bit of racist casting. It is implied that Piro Manoa and Chris Lahani are both Pacific Islanders, probably Hawaiian. They're played by Michael Ansara and George Chikiris, respectively. Neither one of them are actually Hawaiian. Michael Ansara was born, I believe, in Syria, and George Chikiris is Greek. Kind of a bummer to be kicking off the season with a bit of racist casting, but anyway. What's brilliant about this episode, aside from the fact that we have one of those big frame, big schemes that I love, and we all know that I love them, is that we're starting off a new season with new characters. And this episode is actually a really great way to introduce those characters. Now, we do not get an explanation for where Kono is. Kono gets no send-off story. We have no idea what happened to him. We just have to hope that he got transferred to a better job on another island. Let's pretend that's what happened that he is getting into hijinks, maybe on the big island. But at any rate, he is happy, healthy, and abundant. So in his stead, we get two new characters. We get Ben Kakua and we get Duke Lukela. And we get this whole thing about a leak being in either 5-0's office or Manicote's office, the state's attorney's office. And now we've seen Manicote before, it's Glenn Cannon, and we will see him again in the future. But the other two faces aren't as familiar with us. One is Chris Lahani, the other is Paul Drummond. And then on Steve's team, we have these two new faces. We have Ben and Duke, and we need to investigate where this leak is coming from. So it is actually a great way to introduce those new characters by putting them under a cloud of suspicion first. Now, it's pretty apparent that the problem is not going to be Ben because he does appear in the new opening credits. But we still have suspicion thrown on Duke, and we still have suspicion thrown on the state's attorney's office, uh, namely Paul Drummond. There's one suspicious thing about his otherwise incredibly boring slideshow, and we will get to that. So this episode begins with Johnny Resco and Piro Manoa meeting on a road near a beach. They're meeting by a car that has been wrecked and left there. I question, I don't know why, that you leave a car just rotting there on this street. Maybe it's a private road. Most people don't care. I, I don't know. It just, it causes me pain. But they meet here. We established very quickly that they were old friends back in the day, but now they're more business frenemies. When Johnny finally succumbs to Piro's charms and goes in for a hug, Piro obviously betrays him and shoots him. And then we see Mo pay off the bodyguards and they kindly dump him into the trunk, which he is later sealed in a barrel 
tossed into the ocean. Now listen, Piero Manoa is set up to be a very unlikable person. He's very egotistical. At one point, he he blatantly, kind of crudely hits on Miss Simpson. He just shot this guy that he claims is his friend. I can forgive all of that. But the fact that he's dumping barrels of corpses in the ocean, that's just unforgivable. The other brilliant thing about that is after we see Johnny get shot to death, we then get the voiceover of his insurance letter, basically saying, McGarrett, if you get this, I'm dead. And Piero Manoa is responsible. Now, this isn't just a letter to tip off 5-0 to investigate Piero for Johnny's death, but he's saying he has evidence for a prior murder that happened back in 68, and he lays out where all of this evidence is, so 5-0 can get to it. And that's where our problem begins. We see the coordination of these raids because they don't want to tip off anybody that they're going to do this they, because they don't want to risk the evidence being tampered with or destroyed. So we know it's just the people we see in this room and the judge that's going to sign off on the warrants. So when the raids happen and there's no gun because the apartment's been robbed and ransacked and the safe's been blown open, there's no tape because the beach house is full on on fire and there's no witness because the witness has been murdered. We know it has to come from the people in that room. And they make a point of eliminating any possible plot holes or any possible doubt that it could have been anybody else. There was a judge who signed the warrants. Judge Arthur Calais, former presidential assistant, past president of our Bar Association. The idea is preposterous. And besides, I had some other matters to discuss with the judge after he signed the warrants. I was with him from the time he signed them to the time the raids were over. I can verify that he contacted no one. Wait a minute. Wasn't there another officer with you? Yeah. Officer Fred Palio. I took him with me as an extra gun. He didn't know where we were going or what we were looking for. That brings us back to the people in this room. There's one other possibility, sir. Someone else who knew what was in that letter or could have known. Who's that? Whoever mailed it. Interesting theory, but it doesn't wash. If that guy didn't want the evidence known, he would have never mailed the letter. But he did mail the letter, and it got to your desk. Sealed? Sealed. Came by registered mail. I signed for it myself. Who photocopied it? I did. No secretaries? No file clerks? Nobody else saw the letter. By my own instructions. Nobody but the people in this room. They pretty much eliminate everybody but State's Attorney's Office in 5-0. And that's when the investigation begins. It is a full-on deep dive. Now, they're using their new computer technology, which we've kind of seen them use computers a little bit before, but this is 1972. This computer bit is very high-tech for 1972, and they can punch in the codes. The computer operator can punch in the codes and bring up the files that they're looking for. As long as they have something on file, they can bring that up, and it's projected onto a screen. So it turns into a a slideshow if you're going through, like, the same kind of material. So, like, when they're going through Steve's school transcripts, it just, it's one slide after another. When they're going through Duke's financials, it's one slide after another. And that's basically what it is. And that's what they're going to use to deep dive into everybody. And everybody, which I kind of liked this, everybody signs a release form in order to do this. This is great on on two points. And that is one that anybody shows who shows any hesitation or doesn't want to sign kind of gives away their guilt. But also it has it on record that they agreed to this. 
And nobody hesitates. In fact, we see Ben want to hurry up and sign it because he has to check in on Running Gross. So they go through everybody's records and we see a big part of this. So we see them going through Danny's records with the state's attorney's office because one thing tips him off. He had a guest by the name of Rita something who has a known criminal record. Why was he meeting with her? Well, Chris has the explanation in that it was a State Department matter, very hush-hush, and that's why state's attorneys didn't have records of it. And then we'll see that on the flip side, 5-0 is going through Paul Drummond's records. He is really, really boring slideshow, except there's two years of his life missing, and he requested a passport. So they want to look into that, and later we find out it's because he was with the Peace Corps, because this man is basically beige. Anyway... We get through to Duke's records, and that's when we see the $19,000 deposit, which the state's attorney's office can't explain away, and neither can Duke. Because his only defense is, it's not mine. I don't know where that money came from. I don't have a bank account on Hilo. When they point out that he has no family on Hilo, but he's gone there twice a year, he has to confess that yes, he does. He has a niece there under another name, and she's a single mother. The father of her child took off. She's young, and Duke's family is, as he says, of missionary stock, which means they would shun her. They would uh, have nothing to do with her, and Duke is the only one who does. And he takes care of her. He helped her set up a shop. He took out a second mortgage on his house to help her set up this shop so she can support herself and her son. Which is interesting because he said, you can look at the bank at this, because he supposedly got an excessive amount of money in cash to buy this stock in sand and surf condominiums, like $80,000 or something like that. It's like an insane sum. And he's like, I have two mortgages on my house. Where would I get that cash? Because they said, yes, he appeared in person to do this, to invest in this stock. But the lady he in, who could identify him is conveniently dead. So it looks very much like Duke is in trouble. We know in our hearts that Duke did not do this, that Duke is not part of this. This has nothing to do with Duke. He is not the leak. He is being framed. We know this in our hearts. Even though we have only seen him a little bit, even though the evidence is really kind of against him and he doesn't have like concrete proof to the contrary, it's Duke. We just know. And I think part of it is the 5-0 association. We just know. But Duke still is forced to turn in his badge and he's going to be prosecuted by the state's attorney's office. Steve, however knows a good frame. He knows a good frame because he was the victim of a good frame that was like three years in the making. He's pretty confident that that's what this is. So I guess if you have this sort of thing happen to you, you are more willing to accept that it could happen to others. Meanwhile, on the flip side, we have Piero Manoa lounging at his lovely house with Miss Simpson, who is, by all intents and purposes, she's an accountant for, quote-unquote, the company. Every time she referred to the company... I just kept thinking of Alien. But the company actually gets a name later, and it's Bryce Halsey Limited. And 5.0 eventually tracks that down. And I adore Miss Simpson because she is cold, which Piro has an issue with. He even mentions it, calls her Miss Ice Cube. She is calculating. She is business-minded. I just, how do you not admire that? I mean, yes, she's working for a criminal entity, but still, she has her shit together. And she gets things done. She knows how to conduct business, and that is important later in the episode. But Miss Simpson's job is to review Piro's books because he is just one 
branch of this company, one small part, and she's reviewing his books when Runny comes in. And it's a great scene when Runny is sitting, standing at the elevators and Duke and Steve come up. Uh, uh, hi, McGarrett, uh, Duke. Uh, I'm just getting something notarized. I think I'll walk. Could you be more obvious that you were up to no good? Like, Runny told himself, don't be suspicious, and then completely did the opposite. So when Runny talks to Piro at his house, that's when we learn that Runny is the go-between. The only people who know this plot outside of the company, so Miss Simpson, she's kind of our physical embodiment of the company, is Piro the League and Runny. And Miss Simpson is the one who hands Piro the cablegram and reminds him of it, which it's written quite brilliantly in business speak, talking about stocks and liquidation. So anybody else who would read it would think it would be a business transaction. But what it really says is that Ronnie's going to end up in a barrel and Ronnie ends up in a barrel. Poor Ronnie. He was mostly harmless. So Ben talks to Runny's girl, Angie, and let's be 100% honest. If you watch the episode, you will agree with me that Angie deserved better than Runny. Angie is on her way out because she doesn't want to be hit next because she doesn't want anyone to think that she knows anything. So she is on her way to the mainland and Ben tries to convince her to stay, saying that they can protect her, saying it's obvious that because Runny has been a stool pigeon for both sides, been playing both sides for six years now, that if they hit him now, there is a particular reason for that. Angie does not care. She isn't going to stick around and find out. She doesn't, this is no longer any of her business, but she does tell Ben that it's not necessarily just the hoodlums on Hotel Street, that he needs to check his own office because the call is coming from inside of the house. So if we go by the process of elimination here, and we should, we're obviously not going to think it's Ben who is the leak because he's in the opening credits. And we know it's not Duke who's the leak because Steve is confident that he's being framed. So it has to be someone in the state's attorney's office. We get a scene in which Steve and Fivo are still working on trying to figure out this frame against Duke when Manicote and Lahani, Chris Lahani, come in. Manicote gives the bad news that they're going to be prosecuting Duke the next day. They go to leave and Chris speaks Hawaiian to Ben. Aloha ahi ahi, ke akua, no me oko. Aloha brother, e mai kei no ko olakino. Which immediately puts Ben under some suspicion, at least from Danny, because obviously they're friendly. And Ben explains they grew up together. They were sons of poor fishermen. They went to school together. And when Chris made it big by going to Harvard Law and getting in the state's attorney's office, he never forgot his friends. This kind of like triggers something for Steve, piques his curiosity. So he brings up Chris's high school transcripts. According to Ben's recollection, he was all A's. He was a brilliant mind, put everybody else to shame. So they start looking through his records. And that seems to be true. But at the bottom of his senior year's transcript, it says that he turned down scholarships to the University of Hawaii, turned down a scholarship to Princeton. He turned down, I think he turned down another scholarship, but there was no mention of accepting a scholarship to Harvard. Ben's like, well, it must be a mistake because there's no way he could afford to go to Harvard. So Steve says, let's look into this. And upon looking into how Chris could afford Harvard, they find out that Bryce Halsey Limited 
paid for him to go. So Steve gets in touch with Manicode and posits this theory. There is a criminal syndicate out there that is quite international. And one of the ways that they function is by recruiting brilliant kids, particularly poor kids, in high school, much like other corporations do, and providing them with the funds to make their dreams come true, providing them with the tuition to go to college, providing them with clothes, providing them with a car, providing them with the opportunities after they graduate college to get into really great gigs like the state's attorney's office. And once they're there, they know that they owe this company their soul. They owe everything to them. So the company knows that these kids, because of their indebtedness, will do anything that the company asks them to to do to keep the company off of law enforcement's radar. And that's what Steve says Chris did. Because Piro works for the company to nab him on Anna Riotta's death might open up a door to investigating him further and finding his connections to Bryce, Bryce Halsley Limited. They told Chris to protect their investment. He arranged for everything to be destroyed. He told Piro so everything could be destroyed. Now, Manicote has a hard time believing this, obviously, because he picked Chris himself. And I think Ben struggles with it a little bit. We don't actually see that as much, which is a shame. But Manicote really does struggle with this. And so Steve proposes a brilliant test to smoke Chris out if he is, in fact, the leak. And it works better than anyone could have anticipated. You know what else is better than expected? This guest cast. Let's take a closer look at them. Chris Lahani was played by George Shakiris. He's probably best known as Bernardo in West Side Story, for which he won an Oscar. He was also Nicholas on Dallas and Professor Peterson on Superboy. He also appeared in episodes of The Jackie Gleason Show, Police Surgeon, Thriller, The Partridge Family, Medical Center, Wonder Woman, Fantasy Island, Chips, Matt Houston, Scarecrow and Mrs. King, Helltown, Santa Barbara, Murder, She Wrote, and The Last of the Summer Wine. He appeared in the movies Pale Blood, Jekyll and Hyde Together Again, Why Not Stay for Breakfast, The Day the Hotline Got Hot, Is Paris Burning, 663 Squadron, Kings of the Sun, and Diamond Head. Miss Simpson was played by Lorraine Stevens. This is her second of three episodes. We also saw her in Beautiful Screamer. Piero Manoa was played by Michael and Sarah. He has 199 credits going back to 1944. He was Zanko on Romance Theater, the voice of General Warhawk on Rambo, Cochise on Broken Arrow, and he starred in his own show Law of the Plainsman as Deputy Marshal Jay Buckhart, which is a spinoff of The Rifleman. He also appeared in episodes of the 50s Dragnet, Alfred Hitchcock's Presents, The Adventures of Rin Tin Tin, The Rebel, Barbara, The Barbara Stanwyck Show, The Untouchables, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, he was also in the movie, Wagon Train, Burke's Law, Perry Mason, The Outer Limits, Rawhide, Branded, The Man from Uncle and The Girl from Uncle, Lost in Space, Bewitched, Daniel Boone, The Virginian, Gunsmoke, Time Tunnel, Tarzan, Star Trek, The Original Series, DS9, 
and Voyager, Land of the Giants, I Dream of Genie, Mod Squad, Streets of San Francisco, Chopper One, Police Surgeon, The Rockford Files, Kojak, Fantasy Island, Chips, Simon and Simon, Days of Our Lives, Hunter, Hardcastle McCormick, The Fall Guy, Murder She Wrote, and Babylon 5. He also appeared in the movies The Long Road Home, KGB, The Secret War, The Guns and the Fury, The Manito, Day of the Animals, It's Alive, The Doll Squad, The Phoenix, Target Harry, Harem Scarum, The Greatest Story Ever Told, The Comancheros, The Lone Ranger, 1956 version, and Julius Caesar, the 1952 version. And he appeared in the TV movies Called the Danger, Ordeal, and The Fantastic World of D.C. Collins. Paul Drummond was played by Robert Withens. This is his fourth of ten episodes. We also saw him in Two Doves and Mr. Heron and the 92nd War Part 1 and 2. Ronnie Gross was played by Richard Morrison. This is his fourth of five episodes. Johnny Resco was played by Harry M. Williams. He also appeared in the movie The China Syndrome. Angie Carroll was played by Joe Pruden. This is her first of ten episodes. She also appeared in episodes of Magnum P.I., Tour of Duty, Island Sun, and North Shore. And she appeared in the TV movie Escape from Atlantis. The computer operator was played by Walter Yoshimitsu. This is his first of three episodes. And in an uncredited role, Mo the Bodyguard was played by Mo Kiali. This is his third of 11 episodes before he becomes Truck in the final season. He also appeared in Highest Castle, Deepest Grave, and Odd Man Inn. And that is Death is a Company Policy. Really enjoy this episode. I think it's a great episode to kick off a new season with. You know me, I love that big frame job. I love that involved, this took years to set up and they trigger it for a reason kind of a frame and kind of a plot. I love that deep thinking. That's commitment to sparkle motion. It makes me happy. I also like the introduction of Ben and Duke. I am sad they do not give Kono a departure story. That's a shame. But television being what it was in 1972, you actually didn't get that very often. So I'm not surprised but overall, it's a really good episode. The ending is superb and a lot of fun. The way they smoke out the leak and the way it all comes together, just so satisfying. You're going to want to give this one a watch. Why don't you put the numbers away and think about me as a man? I already have. And I became violently ill. Gordon and I have torn up quite a few tracks together, haven't we? Le Mans, Watkins Glen. saint Jovite, Quebec. But now you're into hill climb. Oh, yes, there is nothing like it, Gordon. One man against a mountain, against time, the ultimate race. Tantalus. Yes. Five miles of uphill treachery. S-curves, switchbacks, sheer drops of thousands of feet. There's nothing to match it in Europe. You've studied it well. I'm surprised you never tried it, Gordon. Oh, no thanks. Not me. <laughs> yes, I know all the legends that the mountain is jinxed, the tower of evil, the answer to every driver's death wish. But you see, Gordon, I have everything to live for. Everything. A son to carry on my name, a beautiful woman I love. Huh? Ah, no chance for a death wish. No chance for 
Episode 2, Death Wish on Tantalus Mountain. Air date September 19th, 1972, directed by Alan Reisner. This is his second of 13 episodes. And written by Jerome Coopersmith, this is his 11th of 32 episodes. Spanish racing legend Alex Pereno arrives with his fiancée Angela, his son Nicky, his mechanic Dimitri, and his precious race car, which is unloaded to a lot of pictures in a grand reception. Alex is quite the racer and is now into hill climb racing. He's going to race on Tantalus Mountain. As he tells this to race official Gordon Miles, Angela and Nicky both spot a questionable character in the assembled crowd. It's late at night and an unseen person with a flashlight is staking out the precious race car in the garage. Dimitri catches them and gets clobbered for his snooping. In the morning, 5 is on the scene. Doc says that Dimitri was killed between 1 and 4 a.m. by a blow to the head. He slept in a room off the garage, so he probably heard a noise and investigated. Jay is still working on the forensics. Alex found the body, called it in, then called someone higher up because Steve keeps getting calls from the State Department. He bailed, but left Angela to let the cops in. Steve talks to her, and she tells him that Alex and Nikki are out on the mountain because Alex doesn't mourn like other men. Angela was in her room at the time of the murder, but says that about 10 after 1, she heard a noise outside. When she looked out the window, two drunk men got out of a taxi. One of the men was Dimitri, but she didn't know about the other man, only that he was younger. Alex and Nikki stop on a spot on the mountain examining the hill race course. It's dangerous, to be sure. They're joined by Steve and Saunders from the State Department. They feel Alex could be the target, and Dimitri might have caught someone trying to sabotage the car. Alex knows this, and he's going to have his car checked by the best mechanic from California, but he doesn't want bodyguards. Steve says he's going to have a squad car parked out in front of his house anyway, which Alex isn't a fan of. When Nikki tells him that the police are only trying to keep him safe, Alex gets pissed and leaves his son with Steve, taking State Department Saunders with him instead. Nikki takes this opportunity to snitch on his impending stepmother, saying he followed her from the house last night where she met with a man he'd seen at the docks. He didn't know about Dimitri until that morning. He followed Angela because she does things behind his father's back. She technically didn't do anything wrong, but Steve will be the judge if it has anything to do with the murder. The Cali mechanic checks out the car and then takes it on Tantalus for a test run. It seems the tampered car theory is a bust until the mechanic loses control and crashes in spectacular fashion. Sorry, guy. They can't tell if the car was sabotaged because, well, it's kibbles and bits at this point. But it's a safe bet. Alex has a long list of enemies, businessmen, jealous husbands, and ex-wife. But Alex rules out his ex. She's not good at planning and has nothing to gain with Alex's death. Dimitri knew no one outside of the household in Hawaii. Alex only knows the racing officials. Angela and Nikki say they don't know anyone either, and they still don't know who brought Dimitri home. Steve is thrilled to hear that Alex is having a duplicate car shipped in, which he'll check himself. For someone who said he doesn't have a death wish, he certainly seems to have a death wish. Nikki catches Steve outside and admits to bringing Dimitri home and putting him to bed. He lied because he didn't want his father to know. Dimitri drinks a lot, especially before a race, and Nikki was supposed to watch him. He found him as soon as he could and brought him home. In the car, Steve points out that Angela said she didn't know anyone on the island, but Nikki said she met someone. But Nikki also just lied. 
there's a lot of lying liars who lie around here, and these untruths are annoying. Steve demands the book on everyone, which later reveals that both Alex and Angela have had brushes with the law due to their tempers, and Nikki once got kicked out of school and then tried to set fire to a dorm, claiming it was a prank. Steve doesn't think any of them fit the killer bill, but he still wants the truth. He is Chin and Ben trail Angela. Under the guise of going shopping, Angela heads out to the garage to leave where she finds Nikki waiting for her. He asks if she's going to meet another man by a pool. She tells him that he's misinterpreting things, but he doesn't think so. When Nikki's presence turns threatening, Angela tells him that she'll call Alex out to the garage and they can both tell their stories. Nikki is surprised when Angela does it and leaves the garage, allowing Angela to leave. Chin and Ben watch as she meets with a man and hands him an envelope full of money. Chin relays the payoff to Steve before he and Ben follow the man, Frank Brill. After backup arrives, they raid his apartment, capturing him after a short chase and finding a gun and $10,000 on him. A subsequent search of his apartment and car turns up a wrench with blood on it. While Nikki and a late-arriving Angela watch Alex make a successful test run of Tantalus Mountain, Che confirms that the wrench found in Brill's car killed Dimitri. And since they witnessed Angela giving money to Brill, Steve arrives at the logical conclusion. He orders Angela to be brought in. So this episode seems pretty straightforward. Someone is trying to kill Alex Pereno, who is played by the wonderful Ricardo Montalban, playing a Hispanic character for a change instead of being forced to do yellow face like he was in Samurai. So it looks like someone is trying to kill him, and it seems kind of straightforward as to who it would be, because someone is out to sabotage the car and kill Alex. It looks like it's Angela. We see Angela on the docks when they arrive with the car and she spots this mysterious mustached man in the crowd. Nikki also spots him, but the first eye contact is with Angela. Later when she talks to Steve after Dimitri's been killed, it's clear she's upset. There's something shaky about her alibi, like the way she acts throws suspicion on her. Well, it was, it was about... Ten after one, I I heard a noise outside. I wasn't sleeping very well. I uh, I went to the window. I saw two men getting out of a car, a taxi. They were very noisy. Uh, maybe they were drunk. I, I don't know. I did see that one of them was Dimitri. Yeah, and what about the other one? I, uh, a, a younger man. I, I couldn't see very well. How young was he? Uh, I couldn't tell. It was dark. His, his face was turned away. I, I don't know. I don't know. And we have Nikki following her to meet a man by a pool. And then she has this confrontation with Nikki in the garage. Nikki knows something is up and Angela is saying that he's misinterpreting things. So it could be construed as her lying to him. But then later we see that she does make a payoff. So it looks like it could be Angela and Angela's played by Diana Maldar. So, you know, I'm going to suspect her. Steve later suggests that it's due to Alex's will because he's a wealthy man. If he dies, 
Angela will inherit a great deal of money along with Nikki. Now, Nikki seems like a concerned kid. He said he followed Angela because she does things behind her father's back and he doesn't want his father to get hurt. He's expre he expresses concern for his father's safety. He tries to keep himself out of trouble because he didn't stop Dimitri from drinking and that's why he lied, which seems very believable. But the thing is, it's like you buy that Nikki is looking out for his dad and sus and he's suspicious of Angela, even though he doesn't come out and directly say that he thinks Angela is trying to kill his father. That all shifts in the garage because when he Nikki confronts Angela in the garage, he's waiting for her. Dressed up for a date, Angela? I don't have any time for foolishness, Nikki. Get out of my way. You know you won't get away with it, Angela, don't you? What are you talking about? Another meeting near a swimming pool? You followed me? Was it something you didn't want known? Nikki, there are things you don't understand, things you misinterpret. Oh, I'll bet. Now, now, don't tell anybody about this, for your father's sake. Why don't you try to persuade me, Angela? Get out of my way. There is something about him when he calls her out for meeting a man it could be her line and trying to throw him off. But there is something about the way he approaches her and something about the way he talks to her that kind of throws doubt on things that maybe things aren't exactly as they seem, especially when Angela tells Nikki, I will lay on the horn and call your father out here and we can both tell him our stories. So there is something going on between them that we don't 100% know. But there is something and it kind of shifts the narrative a little bit and throws a little bit of doubt on exactly what's going on with Angela. And then we have Alex and Alex quickly establishes himself as the only person who matters. The fanfare he and his car receive when they arrive because he's a big time racer. He's now doing hill climb and the Tantalus Mountain is a huge challenge. He intends to beat it and it's a very dangerous course. Because there are drop-offs, there are hairpin turns, it's very easy to crash, it's very easy to go over the side. But as he says, because he has everything to live for with his soon-to-be wife and his son, he doesn't have a death wish. He just intends to beat this mountain because he believes he can. And he has this magnificent ego that carries him through the rest of the episode. In that, after he finds Dimitri dead, the first thing he does is get his son and go to scope out the Tantalus course. Because Dimitri's death, his mechanic's death, his supposed good friend of 12 years, his death is not going to stop him from this glory. He's going to carry on. He knows that, of course, he could be the target and probably is the target. That's why he's going to have this mechanic come in and check out his car to make sure it's not being sabotaged. And the fact that it goes to the extent of calling the higher-ups, calling the State Department to keep 5-0 from getting in his way of continuing with this race goes to show just where his priorities really lie. And there's also something about the way he completely dismisses McGarrett's offering of a bodyguard and how he doesn't particularly care for the squad car being posted outside of his house. It feels like he feels like he is invincible, that he could best anyone who's trying to kill him. Yeah, and I was also thinking that you should have protection for the rest of your stay in Hawaii. I don't like bodyguards. They interfere with my personal freedom. 
I suggest one anyway. And I decline. You ask Mr. Saunders here what my diplomatic status is. Oh, I don't have to ask Mr. Saunders. I've heard nothing else since 8 o'clock this morning. Very well. We can't force you to take a bodyguard, but as of now, there's going to be a squad car in front of your home whether you like it or not. Thank you for regarding my feelings. Thank you very much. Father, they're just trying to protect your life. When I want your opinion, I will ask for it, Nikki. Entiendes lo que te digo? And then ditches him on the mountain he, because Saunders follows Alex to the car to discuss matters and just leaves him up there. So Steve gives him a ride home. And that's, of course, when Nikki comes forth with the information about Angelo. But still, I mean, how friggin' harsh was that? Just so rude. So he quickly establishes himself in a bubble of ego. And you can kind of understand why someone would want to do him a murder because he's kind of an ass. So we have 5-0 trying to conduct an investigation with a very unwilling participant and a suspicious fiancé and a kid who seems to be on the up and up. Alex is insisting on going to through with this race, so he gets the best mechanic from California to check over the car, and then the mechanic takes the car for a test run. And while Alex and Angela and Nikki and Steve are all watching, the best mechanic in California crashes in spectacular fashion and dies. Sorry, my dude, being the best didn't work out for you. Also, I'm pretty sure that the crash that they show is from like a Formula One race. Just looking at the car that blows up, you you don't really see like have a good view of it, but it does not look like this car crashed on the rural road outdoor course of Tantalus Mountain. It looks like it crashed at a racetrack against the wall, but a spectacular crash is a spectacular crash. This does not deter Alex from racing. He just goes and he has an identical car shipped in. So the first car is yellow. And when the first car is shipped in, obviously, too big fanfare. There's um, a whole group of people there. It's a, a proper reception at this dock for this car to be shipped in on a container ship and unloaded. To the extent that the little girl who comes up and gives Alex a lay, he has her, he picks her up and she throws a lay on the car as well because he's, the, the car is the guest of honor, which again, just highlights Alex's ego and his priorities with racing. But also that little girl was like super cute. So, but we see this big reception for this car to come in this first car. So I wonder what kind of reception the second car got. I'm guessing not as much because it was kind of brought in on the slide. Steve didn't even know it was coming. And then Steve's like really thrilled that he's bringing in a duplicate car and insisting on racing. Alex assures him that this time he will check the car himself and admits to everyone that he's the second best mechanic. So he is a little humble. Anyway, at this time, they go through a list of who could want Alex dead. And he admits he has businessmen that hate him. He has jealous husbands that hate him. He doesn't mention his ex-wife. Steve brings the ex-wife up, but he dismisses her just because she would have nothing to gain. He also kind of shit talks her a little bit by saying, well, she's not very good at planning. And he turns to Nikki and says, no disrespect to your mother. And it's like, yeah, okay. You don't think my mother's good enough to pull off a murder? That's kind of rude. Anyway, he also confirms he doesn't know anybody in Hawaii outside of the racing people. And again, Angela says she doesn't know anyone here. Dimitri didn't know anybody here. And Nikki, he doesn't know anybody here. Now, they already know 
or suspect that Angela is lying because of what Nikki told them. Well, then after Steve leaves, Nikki catches him again and admits that he was the person who brought Dimitri home and then explains that Dimitri has a habit of drinking heavily, particularly before races, and it's his job to watch him. And he fell down on the dub and he had to, when, as soon as he realized Dimitri was gone, he went and found him at a bar, brought him home, put him to bed. But he maintains that he didn't see him after that, didn't see anything, didn't know he was dead until he, he got up in the morning. So now Steve has one person he knows for sure is lying, and another person he pretty much suspects is lying. And Steve doesn't like liars, so he has Chin and the rest of 5-0 go into the book on these people. And what the book finds is that Alex was pretty much a playboy, even while he was married, until he met Angela, and that was all the woman he needed and he even was willing to throw hands to defend her honor at points and got in trouble with the law over that. Meanwhile, Angela was a bit wild. She was busted for swimming in a fountain, and she also threw a wine bottle at a photographer. Chin describes her as being no shrinking violet. And then we find out that uh, Nikki got kicked out of an English school for cheating, and then he tried to set fire to the dorm, and he got caught, and he said it was a prank. So as far as Steve is concerned, they're kind of a wild bunch, but he doesn't see any of them as being murderers. However, he is still suspicious of Angela, and he wants to find out if Nikki was lying or not about her meeting. So he has Chin and Ben trail her. And of course, this leads them to Frank Brill. They witness her handing over an envelope full of cash. This looks like it could be a payoff for a hit. They follow Frank. They end up catching him after a short chase. He probably could have run faster if he didn't have that exquisite mustache. I'm just saying. And Ben laments that he's obviously been picked up by the cops before because he's not talking. Way to know your rights. A search of his house and his car turns up the bloodied wrench under his backseat. And Shay confirms that the blood on it is Dimitri's. It's the murder weapon. So despite the interaction between Angela and Nikki in the garage, it looks like Angela paid Frank Brill to sabotage the car and try to kill Alex and instead ended up killing Dimitri when he got caught trying to do that. And it's a perfectly logical conclusion to come to. In the meantime, while Fiva was putting this together and whatnot, we see Nikki and Alex checking over Alex's new car together father and son working together they check over the car now alex is going to take it for a run on the tantalus course and he takes off and goes and then angela arrives later obviously she's late because she was paying off frank brill it's funny because we go back and forth between alex testing the car and the investigation of frank brill and even though you're pretty sure nothing's gonna happen you're still kind of expecting something to happen with this new car but it doesn't Alex makes it to the top just fine. So it's after this that Steve orders Angela brought in. She's arrested. She's brought in. She's reluctant to explain why she was caught giving Frank Brill money until Alex shows up with her lawyer and Alex wants to know. And she finally comes clean about everything. It turns out that Angela's not trying to set up a hit. Angela is paying Frank Brill blackmail. That's kind of a tongue twister. As she explains, a long time ago, she was in a relationship with Frank Brill. At the time, she thought dating a criminal was very exciting, but she didn't realize how evil he actually was. 
and now realizes it was a very bad idea, especially since Frank Brill apparently has some pictures. He was using those to blackmail her. And the reason why she didn't go to Alex was because this happened before they got together, but she wasn't sure he was how he was going to react. And as she explains, she loved him so much by that time, she didn't want anything to ruin it. She was going to take care of it herself. And Alex is kind of hurt by this, that she didn't trust him and hurt that she went behind his back and basically breaks up with her right there. He can't, he can't get over it and leaves her in Steve's office. Which is really kind of interesting when you think about the fact that when Five-O was discussing Angela as a possible suspect, Danny was the only one that kind of doubted her just because of how much Alex and Angela were in love. He said he'd never seen two people so in love. But apparently Alex wasn't that in love if he could just bail on his, his fiancé at this point. I mean, if you really loved someone, you would try to work to understand how they were trying to protect you from knowledge of a blackmail. I mean, for me, that's easier to deal with than having someone cheat on me. But that's just me. So Alex leaves her in Steve's office. And so that one mystery is solved. Angela's not trying to hire a hit. Angela's being blackmailed. But Angela knows that Alex is still in danger. And Steve now wants the whole entire truth. You know what else gets my heart racing? This guest cast. Let's take a closer look at them. Alex Perino, as I said, was played by Ricardo Montalban. This is his second of two episodes. We also saw him in Samurai. Angela was played, as I said, by Diana Maldar. This is her second of two episodes. We also saw her in Time and Memories. Nikki was played by Michael Margata. He appeared in episodes of I Dream of Jeannie, Judd for the Defense, Def Death Valley Days, The Mod Squad, Streets of San Francisco, Young Dr. Kildare, Kojak, Police Story, The Blue Knight, Cannon, Starsky and Hutch, Miami Vice, Another World, The 1980s Equalizer, Max Headroom, Law and Order, and The Comedians. He appeared in the movies Third Person, 18 Shades of Lust, Nine and a Half Weeks, Times Square, Partners, Drive, He Said, and Mary Jane, and he appeared in the TV movies She Lives and Sorority Kill. Gordon Miles was played by John Stalker. This is his third of 15 episodes. We also saw him in One for the Money and Savage Sunday. Saunders was played by Wendell Martin. This is his second of three episodes. We also saw him in For a Million, Why Not? Frank Brill was played by Steve Merrick. This is his third of three episodes. We also saw him in The Last Eden and While You Are At It, Bring in the Moon. Lefcourt was played by Leslie Vincent. He appeared in the movies Deadline for Murder, Pursuit to Algiers, Paris Underground, and Tonight We Raid Calais. Rudy Bender was played by Jim Simpson. This is his first of four episodes. He also appeared in the movies The Werewolf of Washington and Pipe Dream. And he appeared in the TV movie Homicide, the movie. And in an uncredited role as an SCCA official, they were referred to as scrutineers, which makes me think of a CSI Miami episode that took place at a racetrack. And Delco refers to the scrutineers and Speedle like completely rejects that term. Always hilarious. Our SCCA official, our scrutineer, was played by Jimmy Borges. This is his first of 11 episodes. 
He was also in two episodes of the 2010 Hawaii Five-0 reboot. He also appeared in episodes of The Rockford Files, Magnum P.I., Raven, and Jake and the Fat Man. He appeared in the movie Angel by Thursday, and he appeared in the TV movies The Islander and Battles, The Murder That Wouldn't Die. And that is Death Wish at Tantalus Mountain. Rather enjoy this episode because it is straightforward yet has a swerve to it. I like the way that it all comes together. Plus, we have a lot of hot racing action. If you like race cars and you like to watch hill climb racing, we get that in this episode. You get a lot of beautiful views because, of course, we're hill racing in Hawaii. I have conflicting information about where they filmed. I don't think they filmed on Tantalus Mountain. I don't think they filmed on Tantalus Drive because it's residential. I think they filmed on a different road, but it's still gorgeous no matter where they filmed. The ending is kind of predictable. You kind of know who's responsible, particularly when you get to the point when you find out that Angela's paying blackmail, not hit money. You kind of know who it is because the suspect pool isn't that great, but it's still the way that it all comes together, the way that it's all revealed, and the ending of the episode is actually quite satisfactory, particularly if you didn't care for Alex, which I didn't. So yeah, give it a watch. Nice family. I wonder if they pray together. <laughs> and that is episode 52 of Bookham Dano. Two really great episodes, I think, to kick off season five with. I mean, you know me, as far as I'm concerned, you can't go wrong with a big plot and even a smaller plot like in Death Wish on Tantalus Mountain. Thank you so much for joining me for yet another season of Bookham Dano. You know I always appreciate your ears. Apologies for the ambient noises. Somebody started watching Perry Mason really loudly about halfway through. So bonus Raymond Burr in this episode. Also, it seems like every person needed to drive down my road and do so with some kind of farming or landscaping equipment. Absolutely amazing. But that's why you listen, right? It's not for me. It's not for Hawaii. It's for the small town noises. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookham Dano. You can also find me at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. Please check out the Patreon. There is now a Bookham Dano tier. So for $5 a month, you could actually be listening to these episodes at least two weeks before everybody else gets them. Something to consider. And if you want my big plan thoughts in real time, you can do that by following me at Blue Sky if you can't follow me on Twitter at Kiki Writes. So don't let anyone put you in a barrel. And don't be the best mechanic in California. Until next time. Aloha. <laughs> <laughs>